The following program is for informational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new science, so do your homework before putting money on the line. Today is February 18th, 2014. Welcome to episode 85 of Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief at the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, and today it's all about MT Gox. One of the earliest, longest-running, and for many years the biggest exchange in the world of Bitcoin has had another of its yearly panics. There's a lot of ground to cover here, so we're going to jump right in. For today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're actually going to reintroduce ourselves. Let's Talk Bitcoin is a show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. That's kind of a fancy way of saying that we think that cryptocurrency is a fundamentally game-changing technology, and that Bitcoin is kind of at the forefront of that. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief of Let's Talk Bitcoin, and I'm one of the hosts on the show. I'm Stephanie Murphy. I am a radio host and a voiceover artist and a former research biochemist. I've been using Bitcoin since 2011. I'm really excited about Bitcoin because I think it helps bring human freedom to the world. Hi, I'm Andreas Antonopoulos. I am a security expert and specialize in distributed systems. I've been working in that field for almost two decades now. And uh, Bitcoin is something that has captured my imagination and has become my main passion, my main focus on my work for the last two years. For the last nine months or so, I guess it's probably closer to 10 months now, since the 25th of April, we've been doing this show twice a week and not always with everybody on the show. But the point has been to have the high level conversation that people who are interested in cryptocurrencies and interested in the future that's being created here, you know, to, to have those conversations and to really talk about the things that might be more complicated than a new user could come to terms with easily. But for people who have been in the space for a while, these are really the important things that we need to talk about. So is Mt. Gox finally on its last legs? And is this latest problem that they've had, which resulted in the freezing of both, both fiat currency withdrawals and Bitcoin withdrawals, is this finally the straw that breaks the camel's back and leads to the demise of Mt. Gox? Well, just to be clear, there was a separate problem that prevented them from processing dollar withdrawals, which they really haven't been very transparent about. But what they do say is that it's a regulatory issue or a banking problem, which is why they can't get fiat money to their customers when they try to withdraw it from the exchange. The Bitcoin withdrawal processing problem was new just this week. And actually, by all indications, they weren't too transparent about it until people started complaining very loudly. There was one guy who actually protested and flew to Mt. Cox headquarters in Tokyo and just waited for some of the higher ups at the company to come to work so he could talk to them and posted about it on Reddit. Really funny, but but it's not funny if you have bitcoins or or fiat stuck in the exchange and you can't get them out and you're probably kind of freaking out. I don't I don't really think this is a different problem, though. It's the same problem. It's the same problem for the USD withdrawals. It's the same problem for the Bitcoin withdrawals. It's the same problem for the denial of service and latency problems back in April. It's the same problems before that. It's the same problems during the denial of service attack. The problem is clownish and incompetent management from the top, a sloppy development process for the software development, incompetent communication that is rare and usually self-serving and intended to shift the blame elsewhere, uh, defensive. And again, you know, this is the same problem. The problem is clownish and incompetent management from the top that has persisted after three years without any discernible improvement in the quality of people hired or the management quality to actually treat customers who have serious money in this exchange respectfully, honestly, and directly, and to admit issues when they occur, clarify what's being done to fix them, fix them quickly. And this causes these cycles where people don't trust Gox because Gox doesn't tell us what they're doing. Uh, when they do say something, it's self-serving, defensive, and aims to deflect the blame. And that creates paranoia. So customers think, oh my God, maybe the money isn't really there. Maybe that's why they're saying this. And that starts a panic and a run on the bank. 
And we've seen this unfold five times. And every single time, it's been the same basic mistakes made again and again and again. And guess what? You can fix the software and you can fix the latency problems and you can fix the DDoS problems, but you can't fix incompetent management. You can't until the people who are in management figure out that there's a difference between being a visionary pioneer and all kudos and applause to them for being that and actually running a business in a professional and consistent manner, which they're clearly unable to do. So you can't now, fix that. I don't necessarily disagree with you on this, and I certainly agree that Mt. Gox has had plenty of opportunities to fix this, but I also have had conversations with people who actually work with Gox or who work for Gox, and the thought there is that they're kind of trapped in an impossible situation. In the past, they've sort of said this. They've said, you know, well, we're victims of our own success, and that's one part of it. But the other part is, is that they do have to interface with real-world partners who a lot of times, like, for example, if... If they complain about their bank and the bank is the only one that will work with them in Japan, then the bank just slows down. It actually can make the problem worse by talking about it. If you were in that same situation, Andres, or just having difficulty scaling, what is the game plan? I mean, do you just pack up or do you just keep hiring people? Because they've done that. Well, I think the most important thing is to be honest, direct, and prolific in the communications and consistent in the communications. I think that's been the biggest failing. It's the circling of the wagons and going quiet at a time when problems will inevitably come out. And that going quiet then leads to panic and paranoia about what the root cause is. Because in all of these cases, the main problem has been a lack of communication or communication that is weaselly in, instead of being direct and, and again, seeks to deflect blame instead of admitting problems. You know, problems are going to happen. Of course, they're going to happen, especially in these large, rapidly scaling businesses. We're all having problems all the time. This is a very difficult, competitive, very rapidly escalating market, and it's difficult to manage a business in this environment. But it, it's not the problems. It's how you deal with them. And whether you deal with them in an open manner that's respectful towards your customers, and they will forgive the problems as long as you communicate clearly with them and you're direct and honest. And they will not forgive and will continuously lose trust if you repeatedly avoid communicating or communicating in a way that's more about deflecting blame than clarifying the situation. I don't blame Cox for incorrectly implementing transaction hashes. I blame Gox for a press release that then attempted to throw Bitcoin under the bus in order to pretend that somehow this wasn't their implementation problem. And Explain what that was for people who aren't caught up with that. Well, actually, let's back up for a second here. The whole problem here is is called transaction malleability, right? Let's actually take a step back and talk about that. And then I'd also like to talk about the US dollar problems they've had in the past too. Let's talk about transaction malleability. I'll try with an analogy, I think, which works somewhat. It's, it's obviously not 100% accurate, uh, and like no analogy is, but it may help clarify the issue. If you show up at a department store with a receipt for a pair of shoes and you want a refund, the department store is not going to trust that receipt. They're going to look at the receipt. They're going to cross-check it against their own internal records. And the reason they're going to do that is because a lot of the time people will go and buy a $20 pair of shoes and they'll come back the next day for a refund with a photoshopped receipt that shows it was a $200 pair of shoes. And if your customer service employees are not properly trained and they don't check against the records, they're going to give out $200 in refunds to get a product back that you only paid $20 for. Or a customer will show up at one department store branch and get a refund and then drive a few miles down the road and go to another branch and get another refund and then drive a few miles down the road to another branch and get another refund all with photoshopped or photocopied receipts. The issue here is that the receipt itself is not authoritative. The receipt can be tampered with and it can be tampered with very creatively. You can add digits to the amount, you can photocopy it, you can make different copies for different items, you can fake the item. You could do that with delivery receipts from 
shipping companies. You could pretend that something that should have been delivered hasn't been delivered by creating a fake tracking request that doesn't match the internal company's tracking request. What companies in the real world do is they establish security procedures. And what they do is they try to verify the information that you present against an authoritative record. So in Bitcoin, transactions are fingerprinted with a hash. But until that transaction is confirmed into the blockchain, until it's embedded in a block and backed by proof-of-work computation, it's not authoritative. It's just like a paper receipt that the customer brings into a customer service department for a refund. You can't trust it. It may look like your store receipt, but someone could easily have created a duplicate. Until you can verify that against the authoritative ledger, and in Bitcoin, the authoritative ledger is the the blockchain, the decentralized asset ledger backed by proof-of-work computation and trusted because of proof-of-work computation. So transaction fingerprints are authoritative only once that transaction has been confirmed. And before that, they are malleable. And the reason they're malleable is because the transaction itself is not a fixed record. It's not simply a three-line receipt where you say, from A to B amount X. That's not how Bitcoin transactions work. Within the Bitcoin transaction, you have the spending of previous outputs from a previous transaction, and then you have a scriptable language that creates an encumbrance for the next recipient. Essentially, it ties a value to a specific public key through the use of a scripting language. And that scripting language is evaluated as an equation. As long as that equation validates, that's a valid transaction that will get relayed. But there are an infinite ways you can write that equation. And there are an infinite ways you can express the previous inputs such that each one of these variations will still be the same inputs, the same outputs, and the same amounts, but they'll be subtly different enough to create a different fingerprint. Let me give you another analogy. In the Bitcoin network, if you try to spend two Bitcoin, or if you try to spend zero two Bitcoin, or if you try to spend zero zero two point zero zero Bitcoin, the network will evaluate all of that as two Bitcoin. So that's called padding. And you can do that with both positive and negative num numbers. You can add zeros to the beginning or the end of the number in such a way that they won't change the way that the transaction is validated. To change the way the transaction is validated, you would have to change every single Bitcoin node to validate transactions differently. And you'd also have to make the system much less flexible. You'd have to force it into a fixed structure, which then makes it impossible to innovate. Uh, the same thing for the recipient of the transaction. That's expressed as a script, uh, which if you've seen in the script section of uh, Blockchain Info or another Block Explorer, you'll see it as uh, opdupe, ophash160, check verify, check signature. And this little script basically says, uh, here's a public key. Here's the function that you need to evaluate to confirm the person presenting this for redemption has the correct public key. But it's an equation, and you can write an equation different ways. So, you know, think of an equation which is 4 plus 5 equals 9. The important thing is that it validates as 9, but you can write it as 4 plus 5. You can write it as 4 plus 4 plus 1. You can write it as 18 divided by 2. Uh, you can write it as the square root of 81. All of those will evaluate to 9. All of those are valid, but all of those are fundamentally different in appearance and will result in a different signature. So transaction malleability is basically the fact that we have a scripting language in a variable length encoded transaction that is flexible enough to express a very broad variety of transaction times and to be extensible. And that's critical to having a system that can allow innovation without having to change every single client every single time. Instead, you just have the rules by which things are evaluated. The problem with that means that until that transaction is essentially photocopied, stamped, and embedded into the blockchain in an immutable fashion, 
its fingerprint can be changed, or others can be created that are identical in every way except for the fingerprint. And this is something we've known since 2011. Uh, this is something that was published on the wiki, which ironically is owned by the Mt. Gox owner in January of 2013. And this is something that was specifically identified as a weakness in Mt. Gox's implementation about four months ago. There were several posts, both by core developers and others, writing how a bot could be created to inject malleable records that would fool anyone who relied on transaction hashes in order to do withdrawal verification, and that this particular attack could be used against Mt. Gox's specific implementation to defraud them of money. They were not just warned that this was a problem, they were warned that this was a problem that their implementation was vulnerable to, and that could result in them getting defrauded. And they ignored those warnings. And then when it happened, they turned around and blamed Bitcoin for not fixing transaction malleability, which can't be fixed because it's not a bug. It is an inherent characteristic of the fact that we have a variable length transaction scripting language, the core of Bitcoin, and that's not fixable. We don't want to fix that because that is how you get flexibility in the protocol. It's relying on that hash before it's confirmed that's the problem. And that's exactly what Gox was doing. And in fact, now we see that in lesser ways, in ways that had nothing to do with withdrawals, but had to do with basic accounting, several other implementations also relied on that. They weren't as vulnerable, they weren't as exploited, but they were disrupted. This went from being an edge case to a common practice and then a flood. Everyone who had bugs was affected and all of the bugs are now getting exposed by this. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for February 18th, 2014. More and more software clients are appearing for Next. Aside from the basic NRS client that is installed with the server, we now have a new open-source web-based client, a native Mac client, .next and NextSolaris for Windows, and two cross-platform clients called ClientNext and Offspring. Several of these clients also support the decentralized exchange, which is still being tested on a testnet. All of these clients were created by members of the Next community, and you can find all of them at nextclient.org. That's nxtclient.org. For more information, head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next in the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. So let's talk about what actually happened at Mt. Gox with regards to this, how that actually happened, how people are attacking. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andreas. As I understand it, that was that was a really good explanation, by the way, of the technical side of this. I believe in practice how this happened was that uh, people would submit withdrawal requests for Mt. Gox trying to take out Bitcoin and then essentially would have uh, minor units or colluding minor units that would be watching for transactions coming into those addresses that they were withdrawing from. And as soon as it would see uh, that transaction broadcast by Mt. Gox on the network, it would essentially reprocess it and put out another version, a bad version, that would compete for spreading all across the network. If the good one spread across the network, the correct one from Mt. Gox, then there's no real way that Mt. Gox would have even been able to tell that an attack was attempted. But if the bad version won, then the person then goes back to Mt. Gox and says, see, this transaction didn't happen. Send me money again. Is that it? Uh, pretty much, although I doubt there were colluding miners. You don't really need colluding miners in this particular case. What you need is you need to watch Mt. Gox and their attempt to propagate a transaction for which your address is a recipient, and then as quickly as possible, not only duplicate and, and, and modify that, but then propagate the modified version through many, many, many more nodes much faster than Gox is propagating. And you can do that by prepositioning connections to many, many more nodes. It's not necessary to be connected to as many nodes as possible because it doesn't matter which of the two gets confirmed first if what you're checking is that the inputs are spent or not. 
and you're checking after confirmation into the block because you can't modify anything other than the signature. You don't really need to be fully connected and you don't need to have a race to propagate because we let it all settle out through the mining process and block confirmation. In this case, because there was a faulty implementation, there was an advantage to propagating transactions faster for the attacker. And so therefore all they had to do was set up nodes in such a way as to over communicate and over connect to the network so they could propagate much faster probably propagating it to many of the mining pools as quickly as possible. And as a result, in some cases, they won the race, they got the modified transaction in. Then they show up back at Gox and they say, look, the hash you gave me as a receipt, which you think is authoritative, has not gone through. And at that point, Gox should say, well, let's check the block and see if the inputs are spent and find that the inputs have been spent and say, well, no, a transaction did go through. It just has a different signature, but here it is. It was spent and it was sent to your account. Instead, they accepted the lack of a tracking number as proof of non-withdrawal and then reissued the withdrawals. So again, this gets back to that analogy used at the beginning, which go in with a photocopied receipt and they had zero way to check if it was a real receipt or a bad receipt. And so because they don't want to lose any more face, they just refund it because what are they going to do? Not refund it? Essentially, at that point, they need to check that receipt and make sure that the, you know, the other branch of the same department store hasn't already right. cashed it in. Right, but there's has, no way for Gox to do that in their current system. There is a way to do it, but their code didn't. And worse, it also processed the uh, repeat withdrawals automatically. In fact, if it, if it didn't see the hash of the transaction be confirmed after a while, it would simply automate a second attempt. Because occasionally transactions don't go through for whatever reason, so they would reissue it. But there's another implementation flaw there, because... Before reissuing a transaction or trying to cancel a transaction ever in the Bitcoin network, the best practice is to initiate a purposeful and self-initiated double spend, where basically what you do is you say, I'm going to propagate first a transaction that definitively spends those inputs just in case, even though it seems like it hasn't gone through in the time it took since I looked and since I sent the new one, maybe it does go through, maybe the state of the network changes. So what I'm going to do is force reconciliation. And the way you force reconciliation is you issue a double spend against the original transaction. And then you wait until that double spend goes through. Essentially what you do is you spend those outputs that you're not sure whether the transaction went through or not. You spend those outputs deliberately to, a, to one of your own addresses. Once that's embedded in the blockchain and those outputs are spent, that cannot be undone. So you use the blockchain by injecting a transaction that's a purposeful double spend to create a reconciliation, to force a spending of those outputs so that the other transaction cannot go through once the double spend you sent is being confirmed. And then you can be assured that that transaction cannot go through. Then it is canceled. It's canceled because you inserted an authoritative one that, that canceled it, that supersedes it. And that's the correct best practice. Instead, in this particular case, they reissued these not just depending on the fact that they couldn't see the hash out there, but also not checking the inputs and also finally not doing the forced double spend that would guarantee that those inputs could not be spent in the intervening time. So three different implementation shortcuts back to back, all automated and giving very, very easy opportunity to be defrauded. I have no idea how to do a forced double spend. I'm not convinced I ever need to know that. Is this something that an average well, user or even an advanced user would want to, would need to know? Or is it just something for institutions like Mt. Gox? Well, this is something that a wallet does automatically if it's trying to cancel a transaction. And it's something that a large scale wallet management system or key management system like an exchange has to do. Because an exchange that's issuing hundreds and hundreds of transactions will occasionally see some of them not propagate correctly. And you can't just say, well, you know, if I haven't seen it in one block, then it's not going through. What if it goes through in two blocks? And in the meantime, you assume that money's there, but then it goes through. You can't just say, well, let me wait until it doesn't go through because there is no statute of limitations. It could go through a day later. Someone could keep it aside and then rebroadcast it later and make it go through. There's no time limit on it, right? Well-formed transaction, once propagated, can go through even if it didn't go through the first time. So what you have to do is you have to force the issue. And the way you force the issue is essentially spending the money to yourself. For a simple user, what that means 
is if you send something to somewhere and it doesn't go through, then you would then try to send the same amount to one of your own addresses and that would consume the same input. And if that goes through, then you are guaranteed that the other transaction can't later be replayed. But most wallets handle this automatically. Do you put a larger transaction fee on the transaction to consume the inputs? That's a great question. Exactly. You can do that. So you can increase the transaction fee to ensure that your transaction is prioritized before the one that you want to cancel so that your forced double spend is prioritized at a higher priority. So you could do that. Mm. In fact, you can even pre-create a transaction, kind of like a Hail Mary transaction. Let's say you have an amount in a wallet and you want to make sure that no one can steal that amount from that wallet, from, from specific outputs in a specific uh, encumbered to a specific address. You can create a transaction with a high fee that spends that to an address you've never used before that's yours. And then you can just keep that on standby and essentially have a script that watches the network. And if at any point you see an unauthorized spend, which means that someone stole your keys, you can make a last ditch effort to very rapidly propagate your double spend and hope it beats it into the blockchain and then spends your transaction back to you before the transaction of the stealing your money spends it elsewhere. Really, the ultimate arbiter of truth is confirmed transactions in blocks on the trusted decentralized ledger. That is the authoritative ledger. Getting a transaction into that ledger is not a time-bound function. So if you want to ensure that a transaction is not going into that ledger, you have to create a competing transaction that precludes it from going into the ledger by forcing a double spend. Obviously, other exchanges have had the problem of getting big and having to deal with that. And I'm curious if we could point out some examples of exchanges that have handled it well with good (laughs) communication to their customers, because I can't really think of any off the top of my head. But maybe it's because they were so smooth about handling their problems that I just didn't even realize they were having problems. As far as we know, at this time, Coinbase has not suspended withdrawals. I made one today. It went through in two seconds. And therefore, their implementation is correct. Their system is quite obviously not being confused by transaction malleability bots injecting a flood of these. So we know their implementation is correct because... This flood is affecting everyone, so if they're able to swim against this flood, that means they implemented it correctly in the first place, or they fixed it before anybody noticed anything was going on. I didn't see any delays at all or hear Right. It's effectively been testing everybody with this flood of transaction malleability attacks. Oh, it's a stress test. Like, And I think it's important to realize the difference between what happened to Gox and what happened to the other exchanges. I'll go back to my department store and the photocopied receipts. Someone finds a department store that's sloppy in its refund procedures. And they go in and they basically start robbing them, start defrauding them out of money until, you know, after a week of doing this, and maybe they tell some friends, so they go and do it as well. After a week of doing this, the, the, the cash till at that department store branch runs out and they notice there's a problem because they can't reconcile the end of week. So they immediately go out and they announce that the receipt printing company is at fault. <laughs> making their receipts impossible to photocopy. And then they go into a frantic effort to retrain all their employees so they don't fall for that fraud again. But the very next day when that hits the news, people show up with shoeboxes full of receipts by the tens of thousands at every department store across the city trying to pull off the same scam. That's the bot flood. Now, if you work in one of these department stores Even if you think you've got your policy and process down pat and that your system is fine, you still have a line out the door of these fraudulent boxfuls of fake photocopied receipts that are flooding your system. And now you need to take extra care and do everything slowly because you know people are actively trying to exploit it. Right? So you scrutinize every receipt much harder. And now that's delaying all of the legitimate customers that are in line. And so at some point, these other stores said, look, we think we've got it okay. And in some cases we don't because our account system is getting confused, but we're not giving out refunds. Don't worry. We're not losing money. We're just getting our accounting system confused or our staff are getting confused or whatever. So we're going to shut down refunds for a few days and that's going to affect legitimate customers because they can't get their withdrawals either. But we're going to retrain everyone and come back and continue processing. No money's lost. Nothing's wrong. The flood will continue until gradually it recedes because it's ineffective. 
and it's a nuisance. And as I've said publicly, I think by, by this time next week, all of the exchanges will have correct implementations. And the reason for that is because they don't have a choice. Exactly. Uh, it forces <laughs> the issue like nothing it, else. Exactly. And this is the beauty of it. What is the ultimate conclusion of this exercise? Let's see what happens. One exchange got impacted a bit harder and they issued withdrawals and probably got defrauded. However, I think I should make it clear, I have no indication or even any reason to think that Mt. Gox has solvency problems because they only keep a small, tiny percentage of their funds on reserve for paying for withdrawals. And so it would very quickly become apparent if that was being drained that was unusual, and it wouldn't touch their reserve funds. This is not a solvency problem. Mt. Cox did not get robbed for all the money they have because that's not possible to happen. They have at least that many procedures in place to avoid it. They probably took a small hit, but at the same time, I think what happens next was rather interesting. This became a widespread attack. It started hitting everyone, and the industry came together in a very collaborative fashion. I was on IRC channels and phone calls and Skype calls and exchanging encrypted messages with exchange operators, with core developers, with members of the team from Blockchain Info, even exchanges that weren't affected, merchant payment processors that weren't affected, companies like Blockchain Info that weren't affected, were all pitching in. We're all getting their best and brightest to jump in and help out and figure out what the problem is, help with development, implementation, details, explain, ask, uh, clarify, whatever. And the entire industry came together and very quickly put out consistent, clear and honest communications, press releases that, that revealed the issue, but explained exactly what its impact was. And then everybody worked together to solve the problem and help all of the exchanges get back on their feet as quickly as possible so they could resume withdrawals. Now, a week later, we're going to have a system that's more robust. A characteristic of an anti-fragile system is that when it is tested under stress, it not only is resilient, but it actually increases in resilience by making that previous attack obsolete. And that's exactly what we've seen. So we've seen strength in community, we've seen collaboration, we've seen some of the emergency response protocols and contact numbers go into effect that had been established from previous issues. We saw an industry coming together and we saw a problem being resolved without any funds getting lost, without the blockchain's trust basis being violated, without the core network protocol being uh, damaged in any way, and with only a slight delay, which was quite literally a denial of service. And it denied service to those customers who legitimately need withdrawals, and it probably will cost them a few days. But after all of that has shaken loose, we're going to have a stronger network. I think that's a great message to go forward with. I think that the resilience of the network and the continued growth that we've seen, you know, every time we have one of these stresses, like you said, it really just further reinforces that there really isn't anything yet that's hit us that that the the concept and the community can't sort of absorb and then react to in pretty quick fashion. One of the things that's specific about this transaction malleability problem is that it deals with pre first confirmation transaction. So transactions that have not been included in any block and are just propagating through the network. And this reminded me of something actually that I saw a couple of days ago. One of my favorite wallets on the Android platform is called Mycelium. It's from a company out of uh, Germany or might be Austria. Andreas Peterson uh, of the Bitcoin Report is involved with them. They rolled out a local Bitcoins type feature for their Android app a couple of days ago. And one of the things that it includes in it is a feature called uh, transaction confidence graphs. Basically, what these do is it tracks how the transaction spreads through the network because the mycelium uh, network is pretty well connected in just like an exchange is because you want to be able to propagate messages quickly and it's efficient to do that. And you can also learn things from it. And so basically they have a, a graph that goes from 0% confidence up to 100% confidence in about 30 seconds most of the time. And even though you don't have that first confirmation, the fact that the transaction has 
has already propagated throughout the network makes it very, very, very likely that that is the transaction that will be propagated instead of anything that's racing against it. Uh, do you think that that actually helps? Clearly, it wouldn't have helped in this situation because it was just about a competing transaction for normal. Well, no, it will have helped in this situation, too, because you're not just worried about a competing transaction. Specifically, you're worried about a competing transaction that double spends those funds to a different destination. And transaction malleability doesn't allow you to do that. It allows you to fake a transaction that, that looks different, but is in fact the same. Whereas the issue of double spend you're trying to prevent is a transaction that looks the same, but is in fact different. So if I pay for my coffee and get a receipt for that, and the competing transaction is also paying for my coffee, but getting a different number receipt from that. As long as nobody's looking at the receipt numbers, it doesn't really matter because the coffee got paid for. What you're looking for is if I pay for my coffee and at the same time, I pay for something else to a different destination address and then try to compete or to race that transaction out so that my coffee never gets paid. And if you see propagation of the original transaction, then you don't need to worry too much about that, especially for something like a coffee, because the chance then of another one competing ones going out is pretty low. In this case of transaction malleability, the two competing transactions both pay for the cup of coffee. The only difference is they have a different receipt number, and that only confuses systems that are looking at the receipt number or something meaningful. So this actually would have helped then. What do you think of tools like this? And what do you think of the idea that you actually can have some level of variable certainty, you know, certainty with big air quotes around it, uh, by using this type of tracking propagation, even pre the first block inclusion? That's, that's, a, that's one of the great misunderstandings in Bitcoin. This idea that in order for a transaction to be valid in the Bitcoin network, it must be confirmed after 10 minutes or worse, it must be confirmed six times after 60 minutes as if six is a magic number. Really what this is, is a risk reward ratio. It's a risk probability issue. So a single transaction that is properly signed, well formed and has the necessary fees, once propagated, has a very high chance of being included in the next block, no matter what happens. And if you don't see any other transactions racing against it to double spend it, which you can also track, you can not only track the confidence of this one going in, but you could also track for other transactions competing for the same, uh, to spend the same outputs. That gives you a lot of confidence even before anything is confirmed, because if you understand, you know, part of Bitcoin is not only knowing that miners will include these transactions, but knowing it knowing that a, a good transaction, a well-formed transaction will be included because you understand how the miners process the transactions. And so that is sufficient for a cup of coffee. Propagation, which takes seconds, in eight to 10 seconds, you've got sufficient propagation. And in fact, if you just look at the transaction and see that the outputs haven't been spent and the signature is good, you can sell a cup of coffee based on that because you can propagate that transaction successfully and it is extremely unlikely that someone will be able to double spend that and it's not worth doing for a cup of coffee. It's no more risky than someone doing a dine and dash, picking up the cup of coffee from the counter and running out the store before you realize that their credit card authorization just bounced. Um, and that's why you can buy a cup of coffee without signing your credit card slip, because it's a risk merchants are willing to take. Now, would you sell a Lamborghini based on that risk? Probably not. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Would you like to buy Bitcoin? 
Cash into Coins provides the fastest, easiest, and safest way to buy Bitcoin in the United States. Simply place an order online, deposit cash at any supported bank, and relax. Cash into Coins will verify your deposit and send out your Bitcoin within 24 hours. Join tens of thousands of people who have purchased from Cash into Coins. What are you waiting for? Buy your Bitcoin today. Go to cashintocoins.com. That's cashintocoins.com. There is no such thing as a confirmed 100% transaction. It's only a matter of degrees. One confirmation makes it much, much more certain. Two confirmations is enough to sell a high-priced items. Three is enough because the probability of three blocks being rolled back in a fork is minuscule. So you can see, for example, that a one block fork happens uh, perhaps a couple of times a day, uh, but certainly several times a week. Uh, a two block fork happens extremely rarely. A three block fork uh, is almost unheard of. And by, by the time you get to six blocks, what that says is that the probability of that being unwound is so low that you could settle enormous transactions on it. And it keeps going. The Genesis block has 280,000 confirmations, and the probability of someone providing enough proof-of-work difficulty computation to unroll the Genesis block is inversely proportionate to that amount of difficulty. So essentially, there's no such thing as fully confirmed. There's only more and more and more and more certainty as time goes by and as more proof-of-work and more difficulty is piled on top. And so as a retailer, as someone who's doing transactions in Bitcoin, what you have to decide is, what is the value of the item I am selling? How soon after sale is that item going to be delivered? At which point my commitment to selling it has happened and I can't uh, you know, not ship it. And therefore, how much risk am I willing to take? And then you calculate how many confirmations that means. And for a cup of coffee, it's zero. You know, for a computer, it might be two or a flat screen TV, or maybe three at most, because you're not going to ship it in 20 minutes. No one has that shipping down so fast, or at least almost no one. And you can take the small risk that it won't be double spent by looking at the network. By the time you reach six confirmations, you could probably buy an aircraft carrier. Be worried about it. So that's been kind of what we've had to this point. But I think that this tool kind of adds an extra layer in there where you don't necessarily have to make that choice about not trusting, you know, not waiting for the first confirmation because you're okay if you potentially lose $5. It seems like this, you know, it's we, not, we never though. had a layer of tools before, but now it's like the layer of tools, just what it used to go from zero transactions, you know, or from one transaction at the minimum level of this is actually probably going to happen up to, you know, like you said, 280,000 transactions or 280,000 confirmations. confirmations. With each confirmation you add, it gets exponentially harder to, to undo what's come before, right? Exactly. But this is not a new tool. For example, Blockchain Info has had a feature for tracking the propagation of transactions across the network probably more than a year and a half or two years. I've seen it before. Uh, so tracking before confirmation, tracking the propagation across all the nodes in the network. You can interrogate them and see what propagation is happening. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of systems do that. A lot of systems use propagation as a proxy to eventual confirmation. Uh, which means that it gives them a degree of certainty that as long as you see the good transaction propagating and you don't see a bad transaction propagating, uh, then you you assume that eventual confirmation will happen because you know how the miners operate and you know how their algorithm will include transactions into the queue. You can even track which position in the queue it is. So you can see how high priority the transaction has based on understanding how transactions are selected to be put into a block. Okay, so we got way off course here, and I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you, Andreas, for uh, explaining all of that to us. That was really interesting. Tying this back into Mt. Gox, we, we actually did this maybe five or six months ago and asked if anybody was using Mt. Gox at this point, because it was one of my first exchanges, and six months ago I said, no, I wasn't using it, and that remains true now. Mm-hmm. Are either of you guys, I mean, like, it, it's such a pariah as far as I'm concerned. No, it's been over a year since I've used Mt. Gox. Hell I don't. No. I don't know why anyone still uses them. Actually, it has name recognition. I mean, that really does seem like it's it. They, you know, once you get started yeah. in a field like this, momentum takes you a long way. 
Right, exactly. And, and the name recognition is continuously, it works works in two ways. The first one is that newbies get directed to Mt. Gox because that's the exchange that many people know. Worse, it creates these ridiculous headlines where you have these idiot journalists who can't tell the difference between Mt. Gox, the centralized single point of failure exchange with less than 20% of the volume of transactions, and Bitcoin, the decentralized resilient network. So they post these headlines like, Bitcoin withdrawals halted, price plummets. Well, no, Mt. Gox withdrawals halted, Mt. Gox price plummets, volume weighted average price doesn't plummet, and the rest of us are going on with our lives. You get these incredibly bad misunderstandings where people conflate Mt. Gox with Bitcoin, and that's very damaging to the reputation. So not only does Gox benefit from being associated with Bitcoin and getting the new customers, but then it also damages the reputation of Bitcoin by being associated with Bitcoin. So in six months, you know, you said that they're at twenty percent volume right now. What do we think? Ten percent, five percent, gone completely, or zero percent? Zero percent. I'm not that optimistic. I think probably in a month or so they're going to figure out how to implement this stuff. One of the issues they have is their software development methodology is sloppy, so it's going to take them a while to, to to implement this. We've seen that they're generally slow in implementation, so they're probably going to take longer than the other exchanges. But I expect that uh, maybe two, three, four weeks from now they're going to figure out how to do withdrawals again. People are going to realize they are solvent. They're going to release their Bitcoin in one big run, but eventually they're going to get more comfortable again. Newbies are going to flood in and Gox is going to continue to exist a year from now. But this uh, processing fiat withdrawals, am I wrong about that? For dollars. And yeah, for dollars. So, I mean... Are they just not getting U.S. customers? It still seems like people in the U.S. are... No, no. I think they're not getting traders uh, or day traders. But uh, if you wire dollars into Gox and convert it into Bitcoin and withdraw the Bitcoin, it works fine. So if your primary goal is to do buy and hold rather than day trade Bitcoin, you don't really need to withdraw fiat. So it's still used as an on-ramp. It can't be used as an off-ramp for Bitcoin, but it can be used as an on-ramp. And as an on-ramp, because of its location in Japan and because it's not subject to some of the same restrictions you see here, I would say it's still going to be used and it's still going to be a valuable tool. I just know that the problem doesn't get solved. They may fix the Bitcoin withdrawal issues, but they will not fix the incompetent management and communications issues. So as soon as this is fixed and newbies flood in again, Get ready for the next goxing because it's going to happen again. Fortunately, each time they gox us, it has less and less impact on Bitcoin because they have less and less volume to disrupt. So that's the good news. But gox isn't going anywhere, I don't think. So we're going to summon uh, George Bush and say, gox me once, shame on you. Gox me twice. Well, you can't gox me again. (laughs) And apparently you can gox people uh, at least five times because those who (laughs) fail to learn the lessons of history will be taught them again and again until they do. That's really it. You know, it's the lessons of history and how we have to learn all these things. You know, again, like you look at a situation like we have with Mt. Gox and in the normal financial environment, if that's where we were, this would have been a complete crisis that wouldn't have really had a good resolution or it might have resulted in a bailout under some circumstances, you know. But here, the problem just shakes itself out. You know, it's scary for a little bit. But you're right. Like I barely even kind of registered this one. Last year when Gox had a problem, I was legitimately concerned. And this time it just doesn't matter that much. So, well, I mean, if you look at the price fluctuation, and again, if you, instead of taking the idiot journalist perspective of looking at the lowest volume exchange as a, as an arbiter of price, if you do price discovery on the average volume weighted average across exchanges, um, you know, Gox caused a short panic, which then recovered, and now we're below where we were, you know, a week and a half ago. But the price has stabilized again in the mid 600s. And I would expect gradually as the other exchanges come back online and start processing withdrawals, the story will be once again the same. Despite all the naysayers, despite all the proclamations of the doom and the imminent death and already happened death of Bitcoin, somehow Bitcoin survives. And as Bitcoin survives, people turn around and look at that and go, huh. Maybe we need to look into this Bitcoin thing because it seems to survive a lot. 
maybe they have the right message. It is the honey badger of money. So one of the interesting market-based solutions that I saw come out of um, that I saw come out in the last couple of days to kind of deal with this trauma at Mount Gox is the price of Bitcoin has plummeted there. You know, it's it's plummeted at Mount Gox specifically, and that's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, Mount Gox, you know, for the longest time has maintained a pretty substantial premium just because it's been so difficult to get dollars out. So therefore, the dollars are worth less, which means you have to pay more. But now now that that situation has flipped. And so it was interesting to see, uh, I believe his name is Josh Jones. Let me double check that. Yeah, Josh Jones, who's the founder of DreamHost, the Los Angeles Bitcoin meetup, Chunkhost, and a bunch of other things, um, basically repurposed one of his exchange websites that he apparently had been working on for a while to be a Bitcoin to Bitcoin exchange. Except in this case, uh, it's Mt. Gox Bitcoin to real Bitcoin. Because you can transfer Bitcoin within the Mt. Gox system, you just can't transfer it out of the Mt. Gox system. So people who want to get cheap Bitcoin and believe that, uh, and believe that you know Mt. Gox isn't actually insolvent and it will actually get solved, can buy Bitcoin essentially for like four hundred and fifty dollars right now compared to <laughs> six hundred and fifty on other exchanges. But That's they still brilliant. have to bear that risk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love this because it lets people swap out of positions that they're scared about, and they you know mm-hmm. they're happy about it because hey, I got some of my money back, and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. And speculators get to go in and do this. So I mean, what do you guys think about this? Yeah, it's a great way to actually, it's almost like reminds me of one of those markets where people bet on who's going to win elections and things like that, or the outcome of different events. And the price of a Gox Bitcoin really reflects people's confidence that they're eventually going to come through. So I just think it's really an interesting mechanism of market-based uh, price discovery. Yeah, the uh, the bottom line is that price plummets is just another way of saying great discounts. Uh, if you have confidence that this will, even if you have some confidence that this will eventually resolve itself, then that discount represents the risk premium uh, based on Gox Bitcoin uh, as a risk discount that others are willing to offer in order to get out of that situation, those less confident. And I love the fact that not only, I mean, the original idea is brilliant and having one buyer willing to trade is is interesting enough. But creating a full exchange that allows others to take the same risk premium decision and get discounted Bitcoin, thereby converting that risk eventually into quite an extra- extraordinary reward. I mean, if, if this does resolve itself and these people are able to, and I, I think it honestly, I think it will, and I probably should be trading a bit of this. Um, if this does resolve itself, these people are going to get a tremendous discount on their Bitcoin, and that risk is going to translate into a very nice reward. And so what it shows, among other things, is fungibility. Because these Bitcoins are fungible, uh, you can essentially create, when Gox creates two different classes of Bitcoin, one which has a risk discount and one the open blockchain traded one which doesn't have a risk discount, uh, then those become two different asset classes that people can trade between with different risk characteristics. And that's brilliant. Thanks for listening to episode 85 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. The Problem with Mount Gox was produced by Adam B. Levine and featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Music was provided for this episode by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is transforming into the LTB network over the next few months. And as part of that transition, we're adding many new shows that cover the world of cryptocurrency from a different perspective or a very specific part of this growing and vibrant community. From Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine to Bitcoins and Gravy to the Sex and Science Hour, you'll get them all on the same LTB podcast feed as always without changing a thing. That said, we've expanded from two hours per week to six hours per week, and next month it'll be even more. You can now subscribe to just your favorites at letstalkbitcoin.com. Click the Shows button for all full subscription options. And of course, please rate the shows. However you listen, whether on Stitcher, iTunes, or somewhere else entirely, your reviews help others find our show. Thanks for listening.